0: begins with the ultimate goal of the Christian life. And that is, do you know? How does the Westminster Catechism begin?
1: Glorify God and enjoy
0: to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Think about that. The ultimate God is to enjoy God. And so what is this joy? How, how do we How do we welcome it? How do we nurture it in our midst? If this is the case, that we are to glorify, to enjoy him forever. Why is there so little joy in this world, and especially in the life of the church? It seems that exhaustion, anxiety, fear, and loneliness have become specters that many of us are all too familiar with. Joy seems hard to come by. The accusation that Christians have no joy is indeed, I would say, a terrible one. Alexander (coughs) Schmemann believes That the church has embraced the modern ethos of a joyless and business minded culture. He argues that our frantic and pathetic hunger and thirst for perfection, for perfection is the death of joy. Schmemann goes so far to suggest that we experience a serious crisis in understanding the very idea of a feast and its role in Christian spirituality. And Schmemann, I think, rightly encourages us to recover the Christian meaning of joy and learn to embrace and cultivate it. I can think of no better way to explore and recover a decidedly Christian understanding of joy and feasting than to watch the the film Babette's Feast. How many of you have watched the film? Quite a few. To me, Babette's Feast is a really beautiful piece of art. And for me, a good piece of art has many levels of meaning. So Babette's Feast is very layered. There are many, many layers to the film and its theology. And when I was doing some research on it, I was surprised how little people have picked up on that thick theology in the film. So I'm going to use this film as a text for us to sort of look look into a theology of joy and feasting. <clears throat> And I wonder if we could turn off the lights so you can see the slides better. I want to engage as many of the senses as I can.
2: <coughs> oh, good. Oh,
0: good. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just start um, drawing you into the story and then perhaps as we go along the, the lights can be turned off. And then you will see be able to see um, the, um, the, the the pictures uh, more clearly because the whole a film creates different atmosphere and that's a powerful part of the film, how they use light and darkness. The film tells the story of a small Lutheran pietistic community in 19th century Jutland in Denmark. While the community is deeply religious and rooted in a life of prayer and thanksgiving. There's no sense of joy or joyful celebration. A flight from created matter in order to ascend to a higher spiritual realm marks the spirituality of the community. Their true home is the heavenly Jerusalem and their understanding of the Christian life It's about the salvation of one's disembodied soul. Asceticism and scarcity mark their existence. The founding dean and pastor does not allow his daughters, though beautiful and gifted ladies, to go to dances or parties. He turns their suitors away because of his selfish desire that he hides behind pious language to have his daughters serve at his right and left hand. And in the film, it's really beautiful, they depicted how these poor suitors in the back longingly gaze at the daughters and there's no chance (laughs) they'll ever get to them. (laughs) It's really funny. (laughs) He even names the daughters Martine and Philippa after the great Lutheran reformers Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon No pressure on the girls there. (laughs) They continue to lead the community after their father's death and live a sacrificial life of serving the poor and elderly. And what's important here, there's sort of an underlying thread, is they serve their community by denying their own artistic giftedness. They believe that the Christian life is about enduring this life here on earth until they arrive at their true spiritual home, the heavenly Jerusalem. Their shriveled-up imagination cannot fathom that the Christian life is about welcoming the kingdom of God here on earth. Circumstances, however, repeatedly interrupt the melancholy existence of these sisters. Three strangers descend at different times upon the close-knit community. All of them have a keen sense for beauty. The first one is the young officer, Lorenz Löwenhelm, whose lifestyle is anything but pious. His parents parents made him leave the army to spend time with his very, very elderly aunt um, in the solitary confinement of Jutland to come to his senses and reconsider his wild and indulgent lifestyle. (laughs) He's in a good place with those Lutherans. (laughs) The sight of the beautiful and pious Martin inspired him towards a higher and purer life. It is the beauty of what he calls the gentle golden-haired angel that touches him deeply and allows him to glimpse into the spiritual realm. And yet, very sadly, he turns to a life of vanity. The second visitor is Achille Papin a French opera singer from Paris. He visits Jutland for health reasons. By chance, he hears Philippa singing in church. While she sings of heaven and earth perishing and God's glory being revealed in human hearts alone, Achille becomes enchanted by her heavenly voice. Achille then convinces Philippa to take singing lessons from him and he falls in love with what he calls the beautiful soprano of the snow. He is smitten. (laughs) Together, they sing a duet from Mozart's Don Giovanni. In it, they sing of the voice of joy calling, and Philippa responds, and this is all in the opera, I am fearful of my joy. The joy that Achille Papin as Don Giovanni sings of is seductive and not redemptive. Philippa senses the dangers of Achille Papa's sensual world and rejects Achille's pursuit of her. She returns to the safety of her ascetical home, and Achille is heartbroken, and he returns to Paris. Years later, another stranger arrives at doorsteps of the two sisters. Babette, a French woman, seeks refuge with them from the terrors of the Civil War in France. The sisters have pity on her and take her in. Babette's ability to cook and her very, very shrewd sense of business become indispensable gifts to the sisters and a ministry to the small, poor and aging Lutheran community. She serves the Lutheran community by using her gifts in very humble ways. And so you see a, a development from, you know, sort of that porridge-like gooey yeah. meal that they begin with. And Babette discovers all the herbs that grow there and starts making really lovely broth. And, you know, the lights, uh, the eyes lighten up when she comes and brings the food because it's a new level of, um, of beauty. And um, they, they can savor a little bit. Babette, in all the years of her service to this community, never asks anything of them. Never, except once. She begs the sisters to let her cook a real French dinner in celebration of the founder's birthday. The sisters are stunned but feel unable to decline this unusual request so affronting to the lives of asceticism and scarcity. When Martine and Philippa watched the goods arrive from France, including living quails and a large turtle being delivered to their humble kitchen, they suddenly realize that they have opened their door to great dangers.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: a living turtle stares at them like a demon from the underworld. terrorizes their hearts. What if the anniversary dinner will turn into a witch's Sabbath? Has, beca- has Babette become a servant of the devil. <laughs> when they see the wine bottles emerging their pious home, they are horrified and ask if these bottles contain wine. Babette says, Oh no, it is Claude Vougo, 1846. Indeed, it is not merely wine. It is choice wine, just like at the wedding of Cana. But the sisters believe that Babette is going to seduce them into evil things. While it is too late for the community to withdraw from the terrifying feast, they literally, and this is so funny, they literally swear to one another that they will deny themselves of any sense of taste and smell and direct their tongue to its ultimate and higher purpose of praise and thanksgiving. Their pietistic faith had no room for fathoming that God's love and grace might come to them through a feast. They had no clue of the spiritual powers of a Clos de Vougo, first planted by Cistercian monks in Burgundy. The film continues to narrate in the most moving way the role that food and wine can have in the formation and in the transformation of a Christian community. While the sisters and brothers put up their defenses, embrace themselves against the temptations that might befall them at this festive dinner, an unexpected guest joins the festive meal. Lawrence Löwenhilm happens to be back to visit his very, very elderly aunt, and he joins in the festive occasion. The, for, the former prodigal has returned and becomes the voice of a prophet. He recognizes names and praises the gifts of God to the ignorant and unreceptive saints who are actually tangled up in strife and bitterness, despite their pious demeanour. For the rest of the film, the camera zooms in and focuses on the festive dinner. (coughs) It is only Lorenz Löwenhelm who pays attention to the beauty, the colour, the smell, the taste of the delicious food and wine presented before him. But his own sense of wonder and delight, together with the effect of the delicious food and wine, is infectious. The brothers and sisters begin to understand that perhaps the grace of God might come to them through a feast. The camera now zooms in and focuses on the act of eating and drinking, on the facial expressions, the gaze of the eyes, the reddened cheeks. Slowly but surely, a transformation happens, and the storyteller tells the audience. The convives grew lighter in weight and lighter of heart, the more they ate and drank. And somehow this newfound lightness frees them from their interior entanglements, and they become more open and receptive. The main course consists of the famous Burgundian red wine Clos de Bougo, 1846, back then a very, very, very good wine, world-renowned. Today the Clos de Bougo's aren't that good anymore. It's indeed a choice wine, together with a beautiful but also very disturbing dish. Babette served in Cahillons quail served in a sarcophagus made of puff pastry. The dish is indeed rather disturbing and highly suggestive. Quails, in the Christian tradition, remind one of the Exodus story. God miraculously delivered the people out of Egypt. And as they wandered in the wilderness, the Lord supernaturally provide, provided them with food, quails in the evening and bread in the morning. But that, however, serves her quails in a very unsettling way, They are entombed in a puff pastry sarcophagus with their heads hanging over the rim. Now look at that, how detailed the film is and sort of hones in on that one dish. Literally a sarcophagus from the Greek sarx, flesh, and phagen, to eat, means eating flesh. In the theological context of Babette's feast, it seems highly suggestive of the Lord's Supper in the sacrificial nature of the Christian faith. Somehow, Babette's feast is linked to the exodus and the Passover meal turned into the Lord's Supper. These connections are made throughout the film, but they come to a climax in this beautiful but also disturbing dish. And as you can recall from the film, the camera zooms in quite a bit and shows how Babette prepares (coughs) this meal. You know, even when Lawrence Löwenhelm, you know, the, the brothers and sisters, watch him, how he eats all of this. When he takes the bird, he takes the skull and he crushes it and he sucks out the brain. It's a very violent process. But I think it tries to get at sacrifice, it, at the crushing of the bones, the sucking out of life. It's really, really disturbing. So in this meal and in this dish... There is a climactic moment. This is it's very very important, and it's in Laurens Löwenhelm eating this main dish that he's transformed, and he is transformed from a prodigal to a preacher. He suddenly understands the nature of grace, and. Here he starts preaching, and because his sermon, his mini-sermon is so beautiful, I'm going to read it to you. He says, Man, my friends, is frail and foolish. We've all of us been told that grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. For this reason, we tremble, but the moment comes when our eyes are opened and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, that but we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it in gratitude. The film ends on a beautiful note of hope. The pious sisters and brothers recognize that God wants them to be joyful. Their spiritual exile seems over. The film ends with the brothers and sisters holding hands, singing and dancing under the starlit sky around the village water well, so deeply symbolic of Christ as the living water. The heavenly stars have moved closer to earth, said Philippa, and the little Lutheran community is finally able to embrace their faith with joy. One of the things that the film Babette's Feast reminds us of is that both the traditional Passover meal and the Lord's Supper were festive occasions celebrated with lots of food and wine. During Jesus' ministry, the Passover meal consisted for each person of four glasses of wine that they drank throughout the evening. And that is a lot for the Jewish culture that Jesus indwelled. Now let me ask you this. Why is it still so hard for us to believe that the grace of God can come to us through the very sensual experience of eating and drinking? Why do we feel so uncomfortable with the idea that festive play before God, as Jürgen Moltmann calls it, is an important way that we can nourish our spiritual life and foster community? Of course, there is the traditional suspicion towards the arts in general that the film Babette's Feast so poignantly challenges. But we have begun to embrace the arts, and yet I would suggest that we still hold a deep suspicion towards the senses of smell and taste and how they might aid us in our pursuit of the knowledge of God. This suspicion has a long history in the Christian church, and therefore Western civilization. And I'm going to just briefly introduce you to that stream of thought, um, but only very briefly. So it began when Greek philosophers started to distinguish between human sense perception and a superior form of knowledge. Here's here's an early sort of uh, medieval image of when the Passover meal, Lord's Supper, was still sort of depicted at this great festive occasion. I'm I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Robles icon of the Trinity. And already that's cleaned up. There's just one chalice and you don't get that sense of feasting anymore. But I love this image because you do do get that sense um, a bit more. So Democritus argued, a Greek philosopher... He said, there are two forms of knowledge, one genuine and one obscure. To the obscure belong all the following, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. The other is genuine and is quite distinct from this. So can you see how already a, a distinction is made between you know a higher form of knowledge and then what we gain through sense perception? Of course, that's all challenged today. The famous Greek, Um, philosopher Aristotle argued that the intellect that he calls nous is always right, while desire and imagination are imperfect. He believed the intellect is independent of sense perception, while the imagination is a movement resulting from sense perception. So you can see, though Aristotle appreciated and talked about the five senses, he did have a deep suspicion towards the five senses in their role in our pursuit of understanding the world. Now, Aristotle, in turn, had a very, very deep influence on the Dominican theologian Thomas Aquinas, and it is really through him that we have received a value judgment on the sense of smell and taste that has lasted to this day. Thomas Aquinas discussed the five senses and how they relate to our experience of aesthetics, what we sort of, the understanding that we gain gain through the senses, and um, also beauty, He distinguished between the senses that have sufficient cognitive complexity and those that do not. And I wanted you to just have a little look at this one little paragraph from the Summa Theologica. He wrote, "...those senses chiefly regard the beautiful, which are the most cognitive, sight and hearing, as ministering to reason. For we speak of beautiful sights and beautiful sounds." But in reference to the other objects of the other senses, we do not use the expression beautiful, for we do not speak of beautiful tastes and beautiful odors. Can you see how this suspicion is just sort of threading through the tradition? And both... um, Aristotle and Aquinas discuss the senses. So you get the sense, oh no, 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 the no, senses are important to them. They are, but they still have sort of hierarchical understanding of them that devalues, especially touch, taste, and smell a lot. Aquinas believed that both the sense of taste and smell lack cognitive complexity and are therefore not worthy to be considered as aesthetic experiences. Now, when you look at the history of wine, it is only now that philosophers are starting to look at um, savouring wine as an aesthetic experience. Throughout the history of Western civilization, we haven't done that. Aquinas made a value judgment on the senses of taste, smell, and touch that profoundly shaped how Western civilization has understood these senses, and especially Western Christianity. The effects of this value judgment have lasted until this very day. Now, in addition, and that did not help that sort of suspicion during the middle ages the theologians and lay people developed a deep suspicion towards the senses of smell taste and touch because of their close association with gluttony and sexual immorality seven um two of the seven deadly sins and that in the medieval sort of worldview you know the seven deadly sins were a big part of their spirituality and so sort of looking at where they're at so you can just see that in, in, in different ways um, it really built up a, a suspicion towards these senses. Now, and yet, if we were to examine all of this from a biblical perspective, we would not be able to uphold all of these prejudices. In the Hebrew world that Jesus and his disciples inhabited, feasts and celebrations were important ways believers cultivated their spiritual lives. In addition, studies in anthropology and neuroscience have revealed a very different picture. And I can't go into that very much, but I do talk a bit about that and I engage with neuroscience in particular. For example, (coughs) our capacity to recognize and perceive flavor is deeply interconnected with other functions of the human brain. Scientists have shown that those areas of our brain which process smell and taste also process emotion and, very important, memory. Our capacity to smell and taste somehow influences our capacity to remember. Neurobiologists are researching in particular the relationship between smell and memory. They found that the loss of smell is one of the initial symptoms in degenerative neurological diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And there's a lot of research being done now how they are related. It's very, very difficult to find that out, but they know they are related. And think about, we often live in a world today sealed off from the fragrances and stenches of our world. You know, public buildings don't have a lot of smell, maybe coffee smell. Um, We sit in front of the computer, there's no smell. The one group of our culture that has realized how powerful smell is, is the marketing world. So when you go shopping into a mall and you see these wafts of smell come, they know that they can lure you in with a smell. So they've been very shrewd. So I think in light of all of this, I would like to challenge our prejudices against smell and taste when it comes both to our spiritual lives, but also in relation to our appreciation of aesthetics. And um, usually, you know, if if we were to go into a church service, I would like, I would want to encourage you when you go to the Lord's Supper, think about smelling the wine, allowing your lips to be touched, allowing to taste the wine and slowly swallowing it. Really helps you to remember. It enhances your act of remembrance. And um, that's something that we don't focus on. Um usually um, after this presentation, I do a wine tasting and I call it a spiritual practice, but we're not doing that today. So um, I will have to introduce you to the concept of the priesthood of all drinkers. <laughs> um, holy tipsiness and other things another time I'm going to be at a Russia on Thursday where I'm going to give this presentation but with a wine tasting as a spiritual practice and I'm not joking I do feel that tasting wine can be a profoundly spiritual experience because wine like no other liquid in the world is capable of capturing beauty that the earth brings forth in one glass of wine. And I think too often we miss out on it because we don't pay attention. We haven't been taught to pay attention. It takes a while when we drink or eat something for um, for it to be processed in our brain. And usually by that time we are in conversation, which is really the important thing to be in conversation. And conversation is very important. But I think there's something to be said to pause and allow The beauty of a wine or food to really move you to a sense of wonder and astonishment and gratitude towards God, who is not only our Redeemer but also our Creator. Thank you. (laughs) Now, I would like to open this up for conversation. (laughs) So, Sherry.
2: That last thing that you ended on was amazing to me because I can so I I can so um, remember and think of times where you know feasting maybe around a holiday Christmas Thanksgiving and we do immediately jump into the con- conversation okay. and then the image at Babette's feast yeah or you're at an exquisite restaurant or whatever and you're tasting that food and mm-hmm. you're actually connecting and conversing. Over the two
3: Yeah.
2: And I, I get it now that mm. that's engaging in the whole picture of creation.
0: With yes.
2: So, thank you.
0: And, yes. The, uh, <clears throat> the lady?
4: Okay, I, I have so many things I want to say, but I tried to, <laughs> to uh, uh, put it in your shorter form. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for this mm. presentation, which made me feel much, much better about last night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, uh, we, have, we have six families that do fellowship every other Saturday, and uh, last night it is our turn to host. Uh, we both, you know, try. The, from Saturday night, I was preparing and cooking the whole day, and you know, <laughs> along with him. And uh, so, when the dinner, you know, was ready, and I thought, to myself, I said, you know, I love to offer some wine. This is is a constant background. Before I always say, hey, you know, to their place. I said, Do you have wine? I love to, you know, bring beautiful food. And they say, Oh no, 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 we're doing fellowship, Bible study. No, oh. we don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> last time, it was, it was my turn to host. I said, I don't care. I'm not in Hawaii. I cooked the whole day. I mean, come on. And I did, and I feel horrible. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now no, let no, me tell you no, let, no, me, let, me, let me
0: tell you a little story. Um, part of why I'm doing this book tour is uh, my desire is to really have a conversation, not just with Christians, but to engage with culture. So I've been contacting uh, people in the wine world. One of them is Kermit Lynch. He is a very well-known importer of very good European wines in the U.S. Everyone who is sort of familiar with the wine world, if they don't, you know, in in a good wine shop, you will have wine imported by Kermit Lynch. So I just contacted him because I'll be in the Bay Area, and I just sent him an email or to his wine shop. I said, I'm coming to the Bay Area. I love what you're doing with the wines you're importing because he is importing those sorts of wine that bring us to a place of wonder. And I said, I would love to be in conversation with you, are you going to be around? And he sent me an email back saying, I'm so sorry, I won't be around, but let you t- let let me tell you where I come from. He grew up in a church of Christ, church. His father is a church of Christ minister, very fundamentalist, wasn't allowed to drink wine. And um, his parents split up. So there's all of that. He j- I don't know him. He just told me all of it. And then he said, I'm now an atheist but I would love to be in conversation with you because most people in the wine world that really look for, and I'm not saying they have to be expensive wine, but well-crafted wine, they know there's a spiritual dimension to it. So, um, you know, I think here is someone who was a Christian, but he grew up in a church context that rejected the beauty of creation, even though that is a huge um, part that nourishes and sustains us on this earth, that life is very hard. For most people, it's very, very hard. And so the the reformers, both Martin Luther and John Calvin said, we have no right to forbid the gifts of God to the people of God. That's not ours. So thank you for mentioning that. and that we we have a job to do. Yeah. <laughs>
4: Can I just say another thing, which is that <laughs> the six families, well, the, the other five, yeah. they're all Protestant families, but us because our children yeah. were educated in Catholic school. Yeah. So that's we attended, you know, the campus And also, um, I was just at that time very surprised because the Protestant families, all oh, consider the Catholics are so rigid. You know, they're just like you know like they're yeah. service yeah, and you know they just stand up, you kneel down, stand up, sit down. And always yeah. repeating <laughs> after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had the same same impression with them. Um, but gradually, you know, we we attended you know Saturday Eucharist, and I was really surprised. Yes. Yeah. Always dancing around the table, they always full, they're always wine. Yeah. So I had a very hard time to com- you
0: know yeah. convert this
5: yeah. sense
4: of celebration to this Protestant
0: it's a journey. You know, we have to be realized that we all come from different backgrounds and that these things don't happen overnight. We need to allow people the journey. So thank you for that. Bruce, I think you were the next one. Yeah, thank
6: you so much. It's beautiful. And the reading of um, the speaks was uh, really lovely. I'm um, wondering if you've uh, seen or reflected at all on um, the beautiful film of this... Um, uh, Cistercian uh, martyrs in Algeria of mm-hmm. gods and men. Mm-hmm. And there's, I, I think of that feast as a kind of a vet's feast <laughs> as well. Because um, the entire movie is sort of haunting. You know that this martyrdom is coming with the Mujahideen and yeah. so on. And this beautiful um, ailing aging Cistercian community. But then at the moment, just before the Mujahideen are going to break in and take the brothers away, um, they have a meal and the entire film has been shot, the background is, is chant music, but at this meal, Brother Luke puts in a cassette tape, and is Tchaikovsky at the meal,
2: and then they have what is a kind of a last supper, and there are these um, long shots, patient long
6: shots at each face of the brothers around the table, it's a last supper but it's, it's fish and chips, <laughs> it's fish and chips, it's melamine plates, it's uh, it's ordinary kitchen tumblers, but, and it's on the verge of uh, this tremendous kind of pouring out of sacrifice in their lives. And I wonder if there's a kind of dialectic between that meal and Babette's feast?
2: Yeah.
6: You know, two, they, 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 they both involve um, this element of, uh, <laughs> they both feasts. Yeah. But it it actually, we need to hear both of those messages because we can so easily tip over in a kind of go from sort of fundamentalist um, reactionary ideas just simply into sort of a late capitalist indulgence.
5: Yeah, yeah. And
6: and what if those two pieces need to be held together?
0: Well, I start off the chapter with another film Um, So I wanted to use two films, and that's what I've done in my teaching. I I taught Christian spirituality and my introduction to Christian spirituality sort of climaxes in hospitality as sort of a very profound expression of the Christian life. And so I start off with a film that actually Eugene and Peterson introduced me to called Avalon. It's, It's about the deconstruction of the table in American society, and it starts off with an American Thanksgiving dinner. And that's a more normal festive occasion. It's not as outlandish. I mean, that's just an extreme Babette's Feast. But it's more this sort of American immigrant family, you know, struggling financially and trying to help others to come over into the country. But they always gathered for the Thanksgiving celebration, which is sort of more of a, you know, what people could still do, even if they didn't have a lot of money, which they didn't to begin with. And then it narrates how... With, um, with the, with the com- competition coming in and then becoming successful, how they move out into suburbia. And the film ends, really, on the little family unit with their TV tray sitting in front of the TV at a Thanksgiving. And it is utterly depressing. And for that reason, I love that film. Because it just shows us what we have lost. So I was hoping that the, having both of those films in, that it would give them a more normal... I mean, Thanksgiving is not an, well, it is a, an annual celebration, but it, it's not It's not sort of this high-end sort of celebration. But I think that's a very important point, that we don't develop what I call the Martha Stewart syndrome.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I think you were next. I'm sorry, yeah, I don't know who is next. When you said you're meeting with that Araka, where are they meeting, by the way?
0: Um, at the, in, I think the center is in Surrey. Oh, and um, I, Ferry, I, yes. Um, the center is
2: Brooksdale. That's okay. the name of it, and the location is down by the border. Yeah. Oh. So it's a little bit of a trip, but it, it is mm-hmm. so worth it. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, because I, you I'm know... If you and interested in going, talk to me and I can explain to you how that And it's also
0: on my website. There's a link to the event, and it will in- involve a wine tasting. Yeah, you know
5: about the wine thing? Like, I grew up in Carisdale in the United Church of Canada, in a commercial drive from six blocks up to uh-huh. the Portuguese Catholic Church. And my mom's family is yeah. from uh, the, the former colony of Macau by Hong Kong. Yeah. And so... There's no big deal on Mother's Day, Father's Day, beer, garden after mass. They look at you funny because you don't have a glass of wine. Yeah. And there's no way you do that in the United Church. But for the for the the partly the culture and then maybe because they're Catholic too, no taboo, no big deal about wine. You just always have it off to the side with your meal. Yeah. And they, you know they say this guy from Portugal says there's no liquor laws. I can get my son or my daughter give us an empty bottle. Go to the grocery store. Have a filled with whiskey we got so many laws here about liquor, and they figure by the time you're age 19, you know how to drink. Yeah. But it's never served at the table in our <laughs> culture here. But you have to
0: realize, and I, I'm always trying to emphasize that we must not be too quick to judge people and traditions. There's a history to that. There's a history to why the prohibition happened. Um, just to give you a snippet of that on the East Coast... When the pilgrims came with all their beer and wine, and, you know, that well, we need to start growing vines here because we can't always import the vine. They did not take to the East Coast because of the climate. They could not um, plant vineyards on the East Coast. Of course, they didn't know what was happening on the West Coast. Wine culture was thriving on the West Coast, but they didn't know that. So what happened is, because it was right when the Industrial Revolution happened, um, maybe we can turn this off, that they started to have distilleries and hard liquor became the primary drink and that is never a good idea Mm -hmm. so there's a history and then the civil war happened and people started to self-medicate with alcohol and so you had all this incredible alcohol abuse that we did not know in the history of the church because we were not able to produce distilled spirits on such a scale and so the, the the dimension of alcohol abuse that happened was um, very different from what the reformers struggled with. I don't agree with you know that they forbid alcohol altogether, but you have to realize that's a history. And so again, your journey of embracing alcohol is going to be very particular to the the history of your own country and this is something else I'm you know in conversation with Alice Waters she's not a Christian Carlo Petrini is not a Christian and I've said to them you know your country needs to heal in relationship to alcohol there's a whole history it's not just going to happen overnight it's going to involve conversation and people going together and then you know in and then also the whole question about socializing children into drinking alcohol I grew up in the Lutheran tradition in Germany so I had my official glass of wine I had some earlier I admit (laughs) it when I was confirmed in the Lutheran church at 14 so in Germany under the supervision of your parents you are allowed to drink alcohol from the age of 14 so you are socialized into drinking and that's and studies have shown that um, young adults who have been um, socialized into drinking alcohol at home are less likely to abuse it. And so I think there has to be, and that's why I'm trying to, bringing some big voices, I'm in conversation with Timon Davi, The Mondavi family has been very instrumental in developing wine culture because we need to have some big voices that talk about this. And so over time, there needs to be more thinking, well, how can we heal our relationship with alcohol? And then also, you know, on the long term, how can some laws be changed so we can actually socialize children into alcohol? Because children not drinking alcohol and then going to college and being with their peers and learning it there, that's not a good idea, (laughs) and I think we all know that I think you're next
3: This has been really fascinating and you've given us so much to think about Mm -hmm. one of the things I was thinking about because you mentioned the relationship to joy and the senses and so on there is a deep suspicion of the senses in some churches like ours um, Mm -hmm. connected with emotion which is sometimes Yeah. Thought to be unstable in relation to reason and so on. And I have heard this expressed by ministers in this church, a yeah. minister in this church. Um, it's, um, we're really buttoned up compared with some of the other expressions in, like, say, Baptist, Pentecostal, maybe Plymouth Brethren, I'm not yeah. so familiar with that, uh, where wine is never used mm-hmm. in the communion service. <laughs> Welsh is grape juice, this as far as we go. And uh, so some of what you're talking about is totally lost there. But these are people who express joy Mm
2: -hmm.
3: in a much less buttoned-up way than we do. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's and again it's there's a history and there's healing that needs to happen. You know, each each denomination has an emphasis. I grew up Lutheran. The Lutheran Church is very rational, so you think through things and. You know, um, in Germany after the war, my parents grew up after the war. And so the way that the German culture dealt with the war was just sort of not to talk about it, working really hard and thinking. So I realized that, you know, if I wanted to become a whole person, I needed to learn how to integrate my emotions with all the other faculties. And I think the idea that reason in the mind is so stable and emotions aren't, that's a myth. Um, That's a real myth. It's it's really, really encouraging to read the neurosciences in particular and have friends who work in that research to realize that the way we come to understand the world is much more complex and much more integrated. And um, we we wanted to separate it out. But of course, I have found in the academy um, that academics are brilliant thinkers, but often the emotional dimension and other dimensions of their lives aren't as developed because you can't do it in the academy, because you have to so fiercely work towards thinking and producing and writing and teaching that you don't have the context to really grow up emotionally in the way that we should. If we want to become sages, as George MacDonald says it, ultimately you want everything to be integrated so that the more scientific, rational, and the more mystical and emotional, they grow and mature into one. That's really what we're called to as Christians not just as individuals, but as communities, so that and that's part of the brokenness of this world is in the way we come to know things. Um, George McDonald has a little story called "The Dayboy and Night Girl," where he talks about this that the, in a fallen world, we tend towards either the rational or the more mystical and emotive, but really the growing up of our and uh, maturing in the Christian faith is a is a, a marriage of the two, and for that, we need one another. We need those who are more emotively oriented and those who are more intellectually oriented to help one another and go into these areas that we find maybe intimidating or scary. George McDonald uses fear a lot. You know, um, people who are very, you know, um, trained in the rational, they're terrified of emotions, you know, because perhaps that's something that they have to tuck away. And then the the more emotive people, they might feel very uncomfortable with all this thinking. And so we really, really need the body of Christ so that we can help one another to grow in a more holistic way of being in the world. I don't know who is next. I'm so
5: sorry. Um, I'd just like to share an experience that I had, and I'd be interested in your comments on it. Uh, We were in a church about 15 years ago, and I had an Iranian friend, and she said to me one day, You know, every culture has a time when they sing and dance and celebrate and eat and drink. She said, when do Christians do that? (laughs) And I thought about this and I thought, well, the time to do it would be Easter because that's the greatest festival in the Christian church Yeah. But the church was a block off Fraser Street. And some of you may know that the big event on Fraser Street at Easter is the Sikh Parade. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, celebrating Diwali, the and um, they celebrate very, and they have a parade, and they have food booths, and it's just a really big party. Free yeah, free food, and I said to one of my ESL students who was a seat, C- I said, in India, do you do this? It's calls I think. Um, Do you do this at this time of year every every year? She said, "Oh no, in India, it comes at a totally different time. But we do it on Easter here because it's a long weekend." And I thought, "What have we done?" (laughs) (laughs) And realizing that um,
0: um, revelation happens, understanding happens, even as we're not cognitively or not consciously aware of it. There's a lot of learning that we do and we're not aware of. And I think that happens when we, you know, are in a place of wonder, What we gaze at birds or we sit with a glass of wine. You can't sort of summarize it, I've learned this and this and this and this. But I think there's an underlying sense of wonder and then perhaps also trust that God means good. He means well with us. When often, even though we say, oh yeah, God loves us, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that that God is benevolent towards us, that He loves us? Well, it's a struggle, isn't it? Is that
2: next?
0: Thank you for doing that. Oh, so. So in the
6: Protestant tradition I, I, have spoke, I, I don't know what context always is, but have been suspicious of eloquence in a story,
0: <coughs> eloquence of what? eloquence
6: in a certain <coughs> they thought that obscured maybe the apostles doctrine. Do you have a reflection on that? Is there is if I enjoy a sermon because of its eloquence, does that compromise my hearing of the word of God? I mean I don't, there's some <laughs> kind of sensual <clears throat> Protestants live by hearing.
5: Yeah.
6: Th- that theologian you quoted at the beginning says famously, you are what you eat. Yeah. And that seems to be very powerful, but yeah. I've been brought up in a tradition that says faith lives by hearing yeah. So, is hearing a sensual, of course, spoken mm-hmm. word—not music, but a spoken word—should yeah. it be eloquent?
0: Well, that's a good question because it, brought, it brings you into the um, into the bigger question of beauty and how, what you know, eloquent speech being poetic is a, 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 it, its bringing in the dimension of beauty, and I think that can be very powerful, but it can also be distracting. So you can't just say it it, it will always distract or it won't. But, for example, I come from a Lutheran tradition where we revere Bach in classical music. So people go to church, but it's more of a concert. You know, it's not a worshipful experience because people are just there to, oh, he's so beautiful. And it's not really bringing the spiritual and aesthetic together in ways that they should Um, so I don't think I can give you an answer of yes or no but I think it's it's, it's, it's sort of a dance and I think someone who works with aesthetics has to actually learn how to do that well so that ultimately our heart are drawn towards God and don't get stuck in the beauty of an eloquent sermon and say oh that was so beautifully spoken and you can't remember what he said and how that brought (laughs) you to God
2: (laughs) yes I think you're um... Yes, you, you have a good point about Bach. And um, people, you know, I think it all depends on where your heart is and where your, your personal attitude is when you come to church. Sure, you can be distracted by beautiful stained glass windows and the beautiful music and incense. That would be nice.
3: Um, <laughs> but
2: we, we should use all our senses, especially those of who, us who are have maybe more heightened senses, um, and I think those those things that might distract some people could actually encourage some of us yeah. to, you know, just to embrace that whole, uh, God's beauty, God's mm-hmm. beauty is like, it's multifaceted, yeah. you yeah. know, and he did create us yeah. with all these senses, Yeah. And uh, to deny ourselves some of those senses because they might just be distracting, I think is is wrong. So I, I really enjoyed your talk. It was- Thank <laughs> you so much. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good.
1: Okay, Sam, I, I thought that in, in after your official presentation and your entertaining questions and whatnot, you, you've given a more nuanced approach, maybe than in the talk, of that there's. I, not so much an either or but there's a both end because I like the way you talked about alcohol and said well actually those prohibitions were a response to something yeah. I wonder about when there was looking down on the senses of uh, taste and smell would you think that there was the same there was a reason for that as well that there were, that, the, that the, our church fathers looked down upon those senses and, and what those reasons might be like what, why we're hearing and uh, sites more very good elevated question. than others.
0: Now, a lot of Christian spirituality was first developed by the Desert Fathers, whom I very, like very much. Um, if you learn a little bit more about the Desert Fathers, some of them come from very brutal backgrounds, whether that's sort of a very indulgent lifestyle, some of them very violent. I remember one of my professors in Germany told, told us a story about a former, he, he was a desert father, but he used to sort of be in a very barbaric sort of context. And he once came across a pregnant woman in the forest. And he thought, oh, I wonder what that baby looks like. And he just slid her open and, you know, because he wanted to have a look at the baby. And then when he was in the desert, um, he could not, I think he, he felt God had forgiven him for killing the woman, but he could not, he didn't think that God, he could not receive forgiveness for having killed that child. And some of the stories are so brutal. So the Desert Fathers um, developed um, already a very deep suspicion towards the body. Um, even they, they did craftsmanship, but you, know, um, you can already see the roots there in the spirituality that they developed. I mean, sometimes they were they took wine in the Eucharist are exceptions, but in general, from the, from very early on, um, you can see the suspicion towards um, taste and touch and smell, um, and just you know to, to completely remove yourself. Um, and I, um, you can see when you come from a very extreme lifestyle, it's like when you are an alcoholic, and you go to a rehabilitation center, you have to be in a very very different context to sort of step out of addiction because what addiction does neurologically, it's like a furrow in your brain and it's very, very hard once you are addicted to step out of that. So you really have to remove people out of their context into a very different context to sort of heal. And sometimes I look at, not all of the desert fathers were like that, but there were quite a few of them who had very, very rough um, lifestyle. It it also became really fashionable to go into the desert. But I can, you know, as I said, yes, there, there is. And yet... Um, there was another strand in the church that wasn't like that, you know, that emphasized at the same time they taught about the Eucharist, um, and um, in, in, in the more mainline church where they developed the theology and they talked about the senses and touch and all of that. So there were parallel movements, but I think ultimately because we got the framework of, you know, in the framework that emerged in terms of spirituality, use are the seven vices and the seven virtues and the believer is sort of in the middle and sort of battling along. So if you have that sort of tight mm-hmm. framework, it's easy then to sort of say, oh, I, I have to be very, it's only negative. And the other thing, and I've talked to a Catholic scholar about that who just wrote a book on food, and he wants to say, rather than, you know, having the opposite of gluttony being temperance, we should really should be um, saying, no, it's savoring. We should have a virtue that is called to savour. Or in German, we have an even stronger word that's genuss. Um, the, the, um, it's, it's a, a real intentional enjoyment and appreciation not a rejection not an indulgent but a real enjoyment that brings beauty and joy and delight to us so um, that's sort of a long answer to your question isn't
2: it
1: yeah. it, it, it kind of reminds me in uh, C.S. Lewis's sermon uh, The Weight of Glory he talks about how we are not be really perpetually <coughs> solemn. But uh, now I kind of forget what goes after that. But but the the response to that is to, first of all, to take one another seriously. Mm -hmm. So there's the interplay there between the two opposites being professionally solved. No, you've got to be joyful, but where does it start with taking one another seriously? So there's dangers on both sides, I guess. There's a danger that you can be um, flippant. Yeah, and, and joy is your is your God, as it were, yeah. or perpetually solemn and, and no enjoyment whatsoever.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, and I think that's the so to really understand joy in a, a um, sort of a Christian understanding of joy is so you have to be quite nuanced, you know. I mean, in mm-hmm. Babette's Feast, you see Don Giovanni, you know, seduction. That's 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 not the joy that we're looking mm-hmm. for, you know. The joy is something much more. Um, Beautiful and communal, and what I and that's why Babette's feast is so great. It's so tied in with the redemption, redemptive work of God. You know how this meal that is so sacrificial. Babette, um, you know, gave all that she had to make this meal, and it's not just the beauty of the meal, but it's a sacrificial nature of that meal that moves this community towards forgiveness and healing and reconciliation so the joy that's developed is both rooted in creation but it's also rooted in how God redeems and that's why I think this film is so iconic and um, I was asked what what do Pope Francis and Alice Waters I don't know if you're familiar with Alice Waters but she's a huge person in the food and wine world in the US what do they have in common? Their favorite film is Babette's Feast, <laughs> and Alice Waters, from what I know, is not a Christian, and still she sees the power of it.
7: Oh, I was just wondering. Um, I appreciate the, the fact that there needs to be a change in um, the favoring uh, idea um, and education, but just going to say it seems as if high-priced uh, wine and spirits and become a sort of currency and mm-hmm. it, it was we, we sort of exported in some ways even to places, other places um, mm-hmm. like Asia, um, yeah. a, a sense that price and um, sort of rarity is, yeah. is worth something. I was in a liquor store here not long ago getting some wine. And the lady at the uh, cashier said, "That's the most expensive bottle of wine I've ever sold." And it wasn't mine; it was the one. Who, yeah. It was for me. Yeah. Thirty-seven hundred dollars. Yeah. And she said, and I said, "Where is it from? What's going to happen?" She said, "It's from France, but it'll probably be sold for more money. Be oh. Probably to Asia and sold for more money." Oh yeah,
0: yeah. And that's a that's a cheap. That's a really in the, in the high end wine. Not. I don't want to say high end wine. The problem is. In our, in our sort of world, free market world, um, consumerism, wine has been hijacked into that sort of system of marketing, consumerism, and it has now become an object of speculation, which is unfortunate. And even when you hear talk about wine, um, traditionally people have not talked about wine the way we do. You know, um, people have, you know, they are now um, sommeliers and masters of wine. And the excessive use of adverbs... And adjectives to explain wine is really outrageous, and a lot of vintners just shake their heads and say, you know. And but it's again, you just look at wine as something that we consume and what it does to me, rather than looking at the whole reality of wine that there is a place, that there's a vine, that there's sun, that there's rain, there's a bintner, that he makes choices about the wine, that there's a whole community involved in making the wine, and though you might not taste it directly, that still matters. It's not just what we taste, but the whole reality of wine and where it comes from. So this is, and I, I talk about that in my book, the biblical vision is so beautiful when the prophets, you know, it's a very very rich theme, but when the prophets talk about God's redemption, um, especially when the people are in exile, they say, you know, God's redemption, this is what we will look to like. You will be able to return to the promised land. And you, every man will live, be able to live under, uh, sit under his own vine in fig tree, and they will live in peace and safety, and they will be able to work the land, and harvest it through, and have their wine. And so, the, the vision is, wine is not something for the upper class. Wine is something that everyone should have, You know, in in modesty, but enough for to have a little extra for celebrations. And I think that's what wine should be, and that's what wine can be, and that's still what wine is in Europe. And so that's another conversation that I'm trying to have with the vintners. I've interviewed some fantastic vintners. One of them, the family, pioneered the Pinot Noir in Oregon. They now make world-class Pinot Noirs. And so for them to offer wines that don't start at $40, because... Who can afford buying a wine for $40? I have sometimes paid that much um, because I felt like I needed to be exposed to it. And I have friends who allow me to sample wines that are a lot more than that. But they really should be starting at $15. My family makes wine, and our um, least expensive, I'm not going to say cheap because it's not cheap wine, starts at, you know, about um, just under 6 euros. And it's a beautiful wine. It's a simple wine, but it's beautiful. But everyone in our village can afford coming to the winery, buying a bottle of wine, and enjoying something local. You cannot say that of the high-end wineries in Oregon or in Napa or Sonoma. That the neighbor, Not everyone can go to the winery. And I think that's something, you know, again, there's a history. That you're catching up as more and more people are growing vineyards. Um, There will be more wine, and hopefully that will bring the wine down for well-crafted wines. And by well-crafted, I don't mean necessarily these high-end wines that I do not think are worth what people are paying for. But with speculation, you always end up with that reality. For
4: me, um, wine or alcohol drink probably in total sense, I find it's, it's, besides joy, besides enjoyment of life, um, it does bring me. <coughs> I find that growing up, either because of culture or because of your, your upbringing, you have this sense of polar comments. I find that I can only feel very free to cry, to cry and to laugh like just be who I am, how Mm -hmm. I'm created. Mm -hmm. It's kind of under alcohol influence (laughs) (laughs) For years I feel horrible about it, and I feel, is there something wrong with me? So I thank you for the presentation, I think I'm going to ponder over that, but probably on a different level.
2: Can you please follow my way the limit? Well, okay.
0: <laughs> I'll, st- I'll, s- I'll stop off with a little saying that we introduce at every wine tasting that my family does, and it goes like this. I'll say it in German first. To trinken is to beten, to saufen is to sündigen. To drink is to pray. To binge drink is to sin. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, the line between praying and sinning is sometimes a little blurry. (laughs) But it's important. And the other thing that I say to people, we are given wine to bring us joy and to enhance our joy. When you have a, a loss, if you're depressed, if you're struggling with something, that's not when you drink wine. That's when you seek help. Our culture does not know how to grieve. That's something that we, that's I think one reason why addiction is on the rise. Just as much as we need to learn to lean into joy, we also need to learn to lead, uh, um, learn how to grieve again and how to walk those journeys and do that homework. And as we do that, we can come to a deeper understanding of joy, but we must not take a shortcut by suppressing it and numbing our dark emotions with alcohol or food or anything else. So it's not just joy, it's all the other things that come with it. That's why I have a whole chapter on sort of healing and how we, as a, as a community, we need to embrace um, grieving. You know, that we're not always sort of upbeat, but we, we have to give people space when they go through difficult times to grieve. That's just as important as learning how to lean into joy.
2: Well, I'm just, I'm just going to...
0: One... Okay, we're... 10, Have you brought any of your books with you today? You know, um, th- one of my little sermons I give um, because I'm I'm arguing for craftsmanship and that we need to support family businesses, whether it's small wineries, small bakeries, small butchers. We also need to support the local bookstores. Oh. So Bill has a fantastic bookstore um, <laughs> <laughs> on campus. No, I'm not. This is not. I think I take that. for family businesses to survive in this world where you have big corporations that make a lot of money, it's very very hard and as Christians I think we have a responsibility to support them, so even on my website I have no link to Amazon I have a link directly to my publisher, one of the very few independent small family owned publishers left, or a link to find a local bookstore so you can go there, and that's also how you create community